welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This is the Investing Power Hour number 77 on Chit Chat Money. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Ryan Henderson, who, a little tease, has a special t-shirt on today, but we won't get to that till 15 minutes later when we do our fun ad read for this episode. On these episodes, we talk about whatever we want in financial markets. It could be earnings reports. It could be philosophy. It could be recent news reports, basically anything. And we go for an hour live on YouTube every Thursday. If you want to join live, you can, or watch the replays or listen to the replays Sunday mornings, wherever you get your podcast. I think that just about covers it, Ryan. We just covered a great interview with Speedwell Research, uh, Drew Cohen, and it's going to be on Florent Core that's coming out next week. We just had an interview with on SoFi with Brad Freeman, who has who used to come on the show regularly, but now does his newsletter full-time, The Stock Market Nerd. So that was great. And then we got some stuff coming out next week on Hawaiian Airlines and then Addy in the week after. So a lot of good stuff. Uh, but we're not going to talk about all those today. How are you feeling? The market is, I guess, down, but don't know why. Uh, the Fed seemed to be doing what they said they were going to do, but who that knows? Is you never, hawkish. I love you this. Never know. I love this ter- I've never heard the term hawkish so much. I but everyone just loves to call Jay Powell hawkish, but I, I'm feeling good. It's yeah. I mean, the stocks are down. It's honestly kind of, this whole quarter has been a little just like ever since earnings season, a little boring, to be honest. Prices have generally moved, I don't know, maybe a little bit lower, but nothing too crazy. So I don't know. Some some boredom here. I do have some good uh kind of news stories for the week though. Their IPO markets are back. We've talked briefly about this in some other episodes here, but IPO markets are really officially back. Uh, Instacart went public, Arm went public, and Clavio went public. Clavio, Clavio, Clavio. Yep, Clavio. They're they're like some uh, I think like a marketing automation platform company, and they, I mean it's eight billion dollar market cap. So you know, around the same size as Instacart. All of them had successful first days above where they were expecting to price their IPO. So generally pretty solid. And I think for us, that means IAC, my IPO Turo at some point. That's really That's what right. we're Rescue. interested in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rescue that stock, which I will say has been a bit of a dog for us, but we'll see. Yeah. That's that, going to be an interesting end of the year, I think for IAC and, and Turo because they've it's a bit of a boy who cried wolf situation where they they've dropped stuff to the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg where they're like, oh, they're thinking of IPOing in the next few months. And they said that for the last year and a half. So I guess until it actually happens, I'm not going to believe it. And when they start going on their roadshow, but I would assume they're going to do it pretty shortly here, just given the success of these, I wouldn't call them maybe brave companies entering the public markets, but 
we've had some three big ones the last few weeks, and then Birkenstock will be another solidly big one coming up shortly. And it's a it's a cult stock, most likely. It's a cult company, not a cult stock yet. I, I guess I don't know. I, yeah, there's some cult companies that don't turn into cult stocks right away, but I could see it being one. It's sort of like one of those where they're like, "Oh, we want Chick Fil A to go public," and it's like, "Yeah, you probably do, but it's going to trade at a hundred times earnings, and you're never going to buy it." Yeah, they have insane gross margins, don't they? It's like fifty percent plus for uh, Birkenstock or yeah, Birkenstocks. Don't know. I was looking at Crocs though. Yeah, have you looked at them after we had the interview with Jacob Franklin a little while ago on them? I like trading at a dirt cheap earnings multiple, really strong margins, still growing. It's a tough. I barely one. tracked a, it. It's a bit of a conundrum. It still seems. People have very been popular. saying it's. People have been saying it's like a. It's a fad for like the last fifteen years, so it does get me kind of intrigued to potentially want to buy it. But and the returns have been good, pro- probably partly because. Investors seem to think it's a fad. I don't know. Yeah. Have they had a have they had a decent buyback program? Or are they? They have. They have. That's actually a part of it, which can be very helpful. And they are expanding into sandals. So not just they're expanding a little bit outside. You know, kind of with the same material, right? The plastic material, but a little bit outside of that core shoe. So I think that might help them from a risk perspective. But the brand seems really strong, and they do these very unique. Some might say tacky, but I think they work really well. They do these brand partnerships with like the recent one I saw was Shrek and Taco Bell and then uh, not two separate ones. And then, you know, they're making these unique shoes, right? For for these collectors and these people that really love those type of things. They did stuff in conjunction with the Barbie movie, which I will say they priced up at like 90 bucks, which is nice. And their cost of materials is so low, nah, but we don't need to go through a whole pitch on that. We'll probably, maybe we'll do an episode on them sometime next year or something like that. But why don't you get into your topic? What do you want to hit first? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why don't we start with this? So I, I, to be honest, I remember making a pledge to myself at the beginning of the year. I was like, I'm going to read a book every two weeks. Yeah, that, that hasn't panned out. I, uh, I'm not a New Year's resolution keeper, but I started reading Made in America, I think kind of before the summer and I just put pa- put a pause on it and I restarted it last week. And there was a quote and made in America is Sam Walton's autobiography kind of talks about his management philosophy in some ways, as well as kind of how he grew Walmart into the company it was when he passed. And so there's this quote from him kind of towards the end of the book 
where he sa- he kind of talks about bloat. He says, a lot of bureaucracy is really the product of some empire builder's ego. Some folks have a tendency to build up big staffs around them just to emphasize their own importance. And we don't need any of that at Walmart. If you're not serving the customer or supporting the folks who do, we don't need you. I think that is like, I, you see that so much today. And I have a few companies that come to mind initially. You mean, you mean a lot of back office administrative stuff below? Is that what he's referring to here? Kind of just like managers, VPs, whatever. Yeah. Just hiring for the purpose of like expanding the hiring. empire. Yeah. Just so you could say like a thousand people work for me yeah. or I have this big team and it makes you, the more people that work at your company, kind of the bigger your empire is and you kind of judge your size, you judge your importance by the amount of people that work at the company. I think a lot of companies do that or they try to fill it with, I don't know, maybe a Matthew McConaughey in the boardroom or in certain meetings. They try to pay for these expensive board members that maybe don't need to be there. I see it so much where companies brag about hiring and maybe they don't do it in the public sphere, but I think you see it a lot probably with people in their personal lives where they judge the success of their enterprise by how many people work at the company. And I think just having this quote from Sam Walton, that kind of, for me, it may, it sort of reiterated my belief that companies headquartered in the Midwest or the South have a more frugal culture generally. I know there's outliers here and Ron have a more frugal culture than a lot of the Silicon Valley or finance hubs of the world. Yeah. And this excludes Florida, the South, Florida, different, but yeah. Or maybe Ireland is a good choice there. It reminds me of Ryanair. I think it has a lot of those. They probably learned some from Walmart, learned from Southwest, has a similar culture where the CEO, and this is the biggest airline in Europe, I think, says he only has four levels. It might have been five, might have been three. I think it's four levels from him down to the customer check-in desk. So that's, I think, a good example of the opposite of, you know, we're not looking for. And it, it reminds me of every big tech company except Apple, maybe. Apple seems to be pretty good at that, not doing this, but they probably still, I mean, if you get large enough, you're going to have some of this. I'm sure Walmart has some of this just because they're so large nowadays, but basically every large cap tech company reminds me of this. If you're a technology company with a market cap over $50 billion, I think odds on odds are that you might want to look at this quote and look at yourself in the mirror if your stock hasn't been doing well, but TBD. All right. We have a question, question here. Question from first. John. Oh, okay. Who, who does this remind you of? Like the Com- opposite or the, the good? The, the bureaucracy. Filling That's up your just company j- just to fill up your company. Any companies that come to mind? Oh, specific ones? I mean, like I said, every big tech company except Apple. And then if you're a tech, tech company with a market cap over 50 billion, I think that's all of them, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's fair. Salesforce for me. <laughs> well, that came to mind. Yeah, and that's but. that's in my criteria there as well. All right. We have a question here from John says, thoughts on a fintech basket, Adyen, PayPal, SoFi. Well, 
I do like Adyen. Stock has gotten a lot cheaper. We're going to cover that in depth in two weeks, um, two weeks from this Tuesday. PayPal, don't like too much, but it's just a little, I feel like it's a bit of a falling knife, but it could easily work out so far. I like them as well, but I think I'd rank Adyen as the one I'm most comfortable with. One, given I like the management team, and two, his strong track record of profitability. And three, I do think they have a long-term competitive advantage. SoFi is a bit riskier, but I think has really big potential. I listened to the interview with Brad Freeman that we had today. And then PayPal put last. But Ryan, uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I don't know. The I have mixed thoughts about PayPal specifically. Really with, it feels like the company has been mismanaged and it feels like what, what we just talked about. It feels like, honestly, there's a lot of bloat. The the resources are scattered. They don't have any sort of real strategic direction. There there aren't like the priorities. They don't seem like they're focused on any one thing. It feels like they're honestly spread too thin, which is probably a byproduct of them acquiring what twenty companies over the last ten years. Well, hey, they just launched PayPal USD on Venmo. So, do you know what that is? I got a good idea. It's their stablecoin. <laughs> A little late to the party on that, I imagine. Yeah, I'm the, sure so many of the Venmo users care. Yeah, but continue. I don't know. And I have some concerns over PayPal's core branded checkout, which I've I've kind of talked about that on this show a number of times, which is just there's going to be a lot of competition from Google Pay and Apple Pay. So I have some concerns, and that's really still kind of one of their big cash cows. So concerns there. So far... I, Maybe you could take a basket approach here, but I, I look at all these companies very differently. SoFi, I love the deposit growth, and I'm seeing it anecdotally a lot where friends are hearing about the savings rates at SoFi, and they're like, yeah, you know, why not? I'll, I'll take SoFi and I'll, I'll go there. And I, I've seen a number of my friends move money over to a SoFi account and get that really attractive savings rate. The only difficulty is the, the more SoFi, I think has the highest savings rate I've seen of any of the digital banks in the US, the big ones I can think of. I haven't looked that closely at like Chime, but for me, I think it's high. I mean, it's higher than Ally and Ally is kind of similar in terms of the banking side of things. So you're taking a little bit of risk when you have that high of deposit base or a high of uh, cost of capital on your deposit base. So that, that savings rate that we talked about. And I think just generally as a bank risk taking has some, uh, it can be slightly concerning. So, so if I am, I'm really on the fence, Brad Freeman gave a really good pitch about it last week uh, in our podcast feed. If you want to check it out, he's owned it for a while. And I, I think there's a case to be made that this could be a substantially larger business, but obviously there's some risk there. Adian. I think it checks out still a little expensive last I looked. I know it's still come down a lot, but kind of above where I wanted to, uh, where I was targeting my initial purchase. Yeah. Adian's an interesting one because the margin is so strong, but you know, the numbers start looking a little uglier if the margins compress. I think that's the big question for me. Got some comments here saying that SoFi book is very risky. Yes, that's true. Um, we have something from Fuhat. I don't know <laughs> what that's referring to, but 
can we talk about the best bank, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, or Goldman? And if you like growth, why not US Bank? I don't know much about any of those, to be honest. So hand up here, but I would say probably not Wells Fargo. They're just getting hamstrung by the government. And yeah, there's a reason that Buffett sold all of these except Bank of America. I think JP Morgan is always, I think as long as Jamie Dimon's there, honestly, it's worthy of owning. Who, John Maxfield, what did he say? Jamie Dimon is a savant. I like that. And they, yeah. I don't know, they oh, see, just continuously, or go ahead. It pro- you probably get the diamond premium, I'm guessing. I'm guessing you have to pay a little more for JP Morgan. Um, let's see. Let's see what they're trading at. This is going to be very scientific looking it up on an aggregator. PE right now, 9.5. Um, so I'm guessing they're pricing in a little bit of compression there, but eh, not too crazy expensive. Yeah, also, let me throw this some... question out at you. Okay. Student loans, how how big of an effect? On the economy, do you think it'll be people having to repay those? Very easy question to answer. I think it won't have much of an effect. If you look at the payments, it's, I don't know if it was a hundred billion or a few hundred billion. The, look, the checkable, the, the savings is like in the, if you compare it from like 2019, so pre pandemic period, the XX savings on consumer balance sheets went from like a trillion to four trillion so there's plenty of room for people to pay these back in aggregate obviously there's going to be some horror stories as there always are with loans but that's just how it goes have another comment here that says having looked at ceo of wells fargo so i'm guessing the new one he got praise from jamie or actually they did so don't know if it's a man or a woman they wells fargo needs the cap lift but other than that they are good yeah i guess that makes sense. Yeah, they had this cap lift where they actually couldn't grow their loan book, which pretty much hamstrings you as a bank. So maybe once that gets taken out, there's an opportunity here because I know Wells Fargo has historically, or excuse me, in recent history, traded at a very big discount to its book value. But I do not know, and I know Ryan doesn't as well, the big banks very well. So I think- And you got to discount those accounts. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully Since they have they no more- not fee. be real people. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they do not have many or any more fake accounts there. Uh, okay, it is 1045. So we have a new sponsor today. So Ryan, this is going to be a fun one, I hope, but maybe uh, you want to kick things over here to our new sponsor, Manscaped. Yeah, can can people see that on the video? Um, yes, they can. If you're watching the video, Manscaped is our new sponsor and they gave us a here let me pull it out i bet this is just horrible for the audio but got to they gave us their performance package can you see that Brent? nope that's uh, blurry. It's, it's blurring oh, yeah you got to take off your blurred thing. screen there. there we go that's right yeah. what does it say your balls will thank you yeah anyway this uh, uh Sorry, this is terrible. Anyway, yeah. So they gave us the performance package. And I got to say, I am very delighted with the value that we got out of this. We were talking to Manscaped. They said, you know, we'll give you some sample products and see what you think. And I thought it was just going to be something small, but there is a lot that comes with this 
performance package. So um, it's got the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which is probably what they're best known for. It's got a weed whacker ear and nose hair trimmer. It's got deodorants, toners, performance boxer briefs. And if you look under, it's got like uh, a really nice um, travel baggie and stuff like that. But yeah, so I guess maybe to, to be a little more precise with this ad, it support for today's episode is brought to you by Manscaped. They call themselves, and I believe they are the best in men's below waist, below the waist grooming. They're Their products are precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped's performance package really is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 8 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code chitchat at manscaped.com. If my math is correct, that's about 16 million balls. So I'm going to repeat that. You get 20% off and free shipping with the code chitchat at manscaped.com. Go it's ahead, re- check yeah. it out. It's a revolution in cleaning your 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 family downstairs area, area. Yeah, your family jewels. I guess that's the, the appropriate way to say it. And as the t-shirt says here that they graciously gave us, your balls will thank you. I will, yeah. And just to kind of close this this little promo out, if you're thinking about getting uh, a brother, a cousin, uh, a friend, a Christmas gift, a birthday present. This is honestly a perfect gift. It's only, I think it's like $130 for the performance package. Plus you get 20% off using the code chitchat and it comes with literally everything you could possibly need. And then some, so honestly, I truly do recommend it, but I think that just about covers it. Yeah. Do you want perfect to Christmas going? gift. Yeah. The uh, one thing I didn't notice, or I think a lot of people don't think about is you, you want two separate razors for your face and the rest of your body. It's just cleaner that way. I think some people kind of forget about that. So Manscaped can really help that. But yeah, let's keep going on here. We have another question. Thank you for all the ones today. It says, have you looked into KKR and BAM, which is Brookfield Asset Management and Morgan Stanley, given the exposure to investment banking? Well, maybe... KKR and Brookfield. Uh, we have some good podcasts out on, well, maybe not Brookfield, but we have them on KKR and Blackstone from our good friend, John Rotanti, who people seem to, uh, those episodes people seem to enjoy a lot. So I would check those out. But those sort of investment companies, private equity companies, investment banking companies, uh, they're a bit of a black box to me. And I don't necessarily like that. Although KKR and Brookfield and Blackstone, you know, those assets just keep going up and to the right. Yeah. Suspiciously. Here's the kind of, here's kind of the thing that I've thought and how my thought process has changed on KKR and Brookfield asset management over time. At the end of the day, these are basically just sales organizations. Their job is to raise money from investors, all sorts of different investors and what do they sell? They sell performance. They both, both these companies have wonderful performance to sell. They can also and sell stability. And stability, diversification, themes that are hot, right? They can go to any of them, right? Okay, what's hot now? Infrastructure. They're all raising a ton of money across that. And it's just really easy for them to hop onto that theme. Like we have the infrastructure bill, right? A lot of money's pouring into this stuff in the United States and around the world. They're thinking, okay, people need funds here. We're going to hop onto this train. Let's raise $10 billion. People like this. The returns, well, the net returns, 
we'll see what they are. But for the time being, we're going to earn a lot of management fees here. And here's the other thing that I think is kind of perfect about that formula is in times like the last two years, stocks have come down. Equivalent assets to what they own have probably been marked down because they're marked every day. And so since Brookfield and KKR don't have to mark those assets down every day, they don't have to deal with a mark a market price every single hour, every second. They don't have to report as much losses. And that really helps in the fundraising process. And so they're raising funds at a time when assets are getting marked down in reality, or assets are worth less, so they can raise more money because they can sell stability, they can sell better returns at a time when they're going to be able to generate better returns moving forward. I think I really did not appreciate enough how good these organizations are at raising money, which at the end of the day is how shareholders are going to get a return. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. And it's not yeah. easy. I mean, that's good, that's raising money is not easy. There. Yeah. And they do a wonderful job of it. I mean, they've got what trillion Brookfield almost has a trillion in assets, right? In total. Uh, yes. No, that might be Blackstone. I don't know if it's Brookfield. I think you're confusing it there. The, the, the companies that start with B, they're always confusing, but I think that might be Blackstone. Again, I think that's showing our non-expertise here on the, the market. Um, yeah. All right. What's your next topic? Cause I think this will be a fun one. Everyone loves talking Buffett. Everyone ever always has a hot take here. So you had a fun chart. Maybe I'll let you share it because I think it'll be fun for the audience here um, if you want. Sure. And I did see some more comments in the chat. We'll get to that in a second. I got to blow this up real quick. I'm starting to really think this just destroys our audio quality. Okay. So here's Buffett's purchases. The, the, this chart was brought up on Twitter and it basically is all of Buffett's big purchases since 1988 and the pre-tax multiple that he paid to acquire these stakes or these companies. And so the big ones, there's Coca-Cola, Amex, Walmart, Wells Fargo, US Bank, Burlington Northern, Santa Fe, so BNSF, Lubrizol, IBM, Precision Cast Parts, and Apple. And so the reason this got brought up and the highest multiple paid on here was 14.6 times for precision cast parts, but every other multiple was pretty much below 10 times, 10 times pre-tax profits below at 12. or around. Yeah. 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 He paid slightly more. He paid 10.1 times for Coca-Cola, 10.3 to 13 times for Walmart because he has to buy kind of over time. And then he paid anywhere from 9.3 to 14 times for Apple since 2016. So the point here is that a lot of investors say, or they quote the Munger, that, that Munger kind of changed Buffett's philosophy, that he changed it from buying okay companies at ridiculously cheap prices to buying great companies at fair prices. The thing is, these are not fair these are not the fair prices that I think a lot of investors that follow that philosophy quote. These are still very cheap prices. These are 10% pre-tax earnings yields on high quality businesses. 
I think most people that quote that typically say like, yeah, I'm paying 35 times earnings, but you know, like Buffett always says, better to put, better to pay a great price or a good price for a great company than a, you know, yeah, it's good context. Good yeah. yeah. I think his definite this is his definition of a fair price, which is about 10 times earnings. I feel like that's just his he likes to simplify things. He likes to um yeah, I, I don't he just he doesn't say like oh i'm going to do some crazy dcf here which he can probably do in his mind but he likes to kind of hover around that 10 times earnings i think for his fair price but his definition of a great price is probably like 3 to 4 times earnings depending on the company obviously so yeah i think that's a great example what do you think was the if you're gonna obviously ask the best Apple, investment yeah obviously you know the numbers have played out so far but i think what do you think the like the the one with the biggest margin of safety and i'm gonna go seven times earnings american express in the early 90s because that was just really really i mean yeah it's easy to say that now i wonder what amex was like at the time i know when when he first bought amex in the fund which was in like the 60s people thought it was like the beginning of the, the demise of Amex. I don't know what it was like in 94, but it feels like we always look back and say like, wow, I mean, great company trading at seven times earnings. Like there was probably something up with that. Some what about that it got there. What about Burlington Northern <clears throat> at sub 10 times earnings under earning too, uh, because of the GFC. Yeah. And they, they've jacked up prices following that. Yeah. I mean, these are all good purchases. I, I don't know Burlington Northern that well. Honestly, I don't know a lot of these businesses that well. I still stand by the, I'm probably with you there that the Amex and the Coca-Cola purchases that were made kind of in the late 80s, early 90s were two of the most stellar ones because it wasn't it wasn't companies that were underfollowed or anything like that. These were the hiding in plain sight. People just got the narrative or the narrative drove the price too low. And those were the ones that I really liked because it feels like those are probably the most replicable as, yeah. as individual investors to what he's done. I mean, it's hard to do, you know, it's hard for people like us to do whatever convertible notes on Harley Davidson in 2008 or whatever True. he got. True. True. Okay. I think anything else on that? I, I kind of think, yeah, it's just good context for anyone that says, oh, you know, fair price, 25 times earnings. Typically when he makes his big bets, he wants a high quality company at 10 times earnings. And I think that's just good. It's just good for everyone to think about. What's your typical threshold? What's your, what's your version of a fair price? Uh, it depends what business, it depends what business, because he goes for lower growth, right? Typical. Yeah, that is the other thing is these, all these companies, well, maybe not, but he doesn't, are, he just doesn't mature go businesses. Yeah, more mature, were, but can be growing. Yeah. You're probably, I'm guessing most of the reports for, mo for these businesses, maybe there's some outliers here. We're forecasting probably mid single digit top line growth for these businesses, probably uh, at the time of the purchase, which I don't think people are considering that really high growth. But when you're paying 10 times earnings, it's it's kind of warrants the price. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, 
For me, unless it's, so I, I have a few different thresholds. For one, if it's a low grower that I think management's buying back stock or has good capital return strategy, right? I think an example for us that's resonant in our mind, and it's probably, I use this as an example a lot because it's been successful with Sprouts Farmers Market right around 10 times earnings, right? But if it's something that I think is a durable grower with a high competitive advantage, but maybe not crazy growth or a younger company, I'd say, and again, you have to make your own estimates, maybe 15 to 20 times earnings. And then for the maybe high quality company that I think has very strong growth prospects, might be a little bit riskier, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's always so many unique things and you have to sometimes estimate what the earnings could be because some of these companies aren't, you know, earning to their full potential. I think something around 20 to 25 times is reasonable. But again, it depends. Okay. What do you think it's going to grow? 30%? for five years, or do you think it's going to grow 20% in five years? That's, uh, or four, you know, four or five years. I mean, that's a huge question. So I think I like to bucket into a few different camps, but typically, and I know Ryan likes to do this too, because we both do this. We look at, okay, what do we think they can earn? Maybe a little bit conservative because, you know, things can go wrong and okay, maybe one, two years out, can we buy this at 20 to 25 times the theoretical earnings if it's a high quality growth company. But for the more durable stuff, I think Amex is a good example here. It's kind of getting around where we think it would be a decent, you know, opportunity. We'd want it more 13 to 15 times, something like that. Yeah, I think I've gotten to the point now where if I'm for if I have to forecast more than 20% top line growth to make the numbers work, I'm probably just not going to buy it. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I'm probably going to some... miss, I'm going to miss on some because of that, but I think we got hurt. Or maybe I should say I got hurt doing that in 2021 with certain businesses that I liked cough, cough, Spotify, cough, cough, Wix. And I was dead wrong on it. Now Spotify was maybe for other reasons too, but it, it's really hard to forecast that kind of level of growth. Yeah. Uh, Lakers in four, which is a, Good name there says TSM was incredible in hindsight. Yeah, it probably was. And I think that's a good example of how he wants to buy a high quality business at 10 times earnings. But I think after it got a little bit more expensive and who knows what actually happened, but he was like, okay, well, this isn't, you know, given the geopolitical risk, this is not something I want to own at 25 times earnings. But if Apple, you know, Apple's pretty beholden to them. So that's a whole nother question. Um, yeah. Another guy here, they says Meta was trading at nine times operating cash flow. I mean, yeah, that's that's the one there. It was for a very short time period, but that's one where, you know, in hindsight, obviously that was a good buy. Yeah. And also, this is pre tax profits, operating cash flow and pre tax profits for Meta at that time. I've got a feeling we're uh, okay. I'm pretty sure they were very different because the CapEx associated with Metaverse and uh, AI spending for the family of apps. So I don't know. Operating cash flow. Now you can easily say that paying nine times for Meta, uh, nine times operating cash flow ended up being a good purchase. But I think at the time, there was a lot of uncertainty around what CapEx was going to look like and whether or not the CapEx was going to be worth it. Yeah. I think that the, the, and this is why 
everyone knows this, why Buffett has been so good is his price discipline. But I think the key there is that once you get down to that 10 times earnings, you can get good returns, even if the business doesn't grow that much, even if they don't reinvest that much, and they just take the earnings, redistribute them to shareholders, buy back stock. And it's if you have a competitive advantage and you don't press for growth, it's it's such a low risk way to get decent returns. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, did you see this? So Instacart went public, what, I don't know, two days ago, three days ago. The day before, DoorDash published a press release announcing, Door, it says DoorDash broadens grocery selection with multiple new partners the day before the Instacart IPO. And you know what? To be honest, this is a bit of a nothing burger. It's like they partnered with a bunch of like low profile grocery stores from what I can see, probably a bunch of regionals. It felt purely just like a petty shot at Instacart. Yeah. They're competing though. I mean, they just won the deal with Sprouts, which is we know just because we follow Sprouts so closely. So they're competing for customers uh for them. Mean? Like they're both distributing. Yeah. But DoorDash just won that. Uh I forgot. The, and it was you recent. Said the deal, you mean like they both it, well, I mean like DoorDash they, they Instacart was the e-commerce e-commerce Instacart was the e-commerce partner for Sprouts for multiple years, and now DoorDash just launched with them a couple months ago. So I think but it's both, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Okay. So that's highly competitive. Yeah. I mean, I just saw Uber's toss me a ton of emails about 50% off groceries. I mean, it's going to be highly competitive. I don't see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah. At least at this point, it's not. Other than Uber, who's doing it on their own cash flow now, and I'm not sure about DoorDash's situation, it's not just financed by unlimited capital from VCs. Yeah, what was that one? That's a little more uh, rational. Remember, they just flooded the market with advertisements. Oh, GoPuff. Remember that one? Literally every single company. Yeah, no. Do do you remember GoPuff? They kept advertising everywhere. About 15 minute delivery. No, No, I must have missed that. There were so many delivery companies. Yeah, let's look at the mobility. The mobility economy was. Oh, yeah. No, they didn't call it the mobility economy. They called it the mobility revolution. Okay. It's a revolution, Ryan. Let's look at DoorDash. Walking is a time of the past. It's a thing of yesteryear. Okay. Last three months, DoorDash lost $273 million on $1.61 billion in revenue. But let's look at the cash flow. So, I I, I mean, yeah, they might have a bunch of SBC here. Uh, First six months of this year, $790 million in operating cash flow, but a lot of it is SBC. Um, oh, actually, wait. They lost $211 million on $2.1 billion in revenue. I, I like, do you think there should be a mandate that you either put like, it should go chronological from left to right on the income statements? Because some people do the most recent on the left. Some people do the most recent on the right. I get confused and I always make a simple mistake there because that can really ruin some things sometimes. But yes, the other thing I'll add too is it, it always frustrates me when I open one quarterly press release and it's like the income statement is the quarter this year versus the quarter last year. And then they've got the cash flow, which is the quarter versus the end of the year. And I'm like, oh, yeah, really? yeah. I'm like, you're really going to make me go to last year's press release just and do the math here. Yeah. Both. Don't. Don't make us do the math. You guys got all the numbers here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, 
the grocery store. I mean, what are your thoughts on the the grocery competition? I know we've hit on it a few times, but. Well, I don't know. I liked Instacart. Just the service. I think the service, I think has a lot of value, but I'm starting to believe more and more in the competitive landscape that it's going to be tough for Instacart to really grow because at first I thought, well, maybe it's just, the economy overall that's leading to kind of the lackluster growth for Instacart. But now I'm starting to really believe that it's DoorDash and Uber. And I think one of the comments in here said Postmates too. I forgot they exist. They're owned by Uber. So yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Anyway. Um, and then the Amazon and Walmart go vertical integration. So don't you forget really... about Grubhub. <laughs> yeah. Grubhub. What a sad state of affairs that is. Yeah, I think it's bigger in Europe. No, no, Grubhub is not. Or in just Europe. eat takeaway, which is like I think they're combined now. Yeah, either way, I mean, that's still. Do you want to look at that stock price? Pretty, pretty, pretty tough stuff. Just eat, what the hell? Just eat takeaway. Okay, you want question. You want to guess what their total return is over the last ten years or five years? Minus seventy. Wow. Yeah. Minus 74. Five-year returns. Okay. Question for you. We used to ask our interviewees this all the time. And uh, we really haven't been doing it as much. And I think we even did it early days when we were back doing the old show. What is What would you call your worst investment? Not nominally, so not what's like actually had the worst investment returns, but the one where you were like hindsight that was the most obviously wrong or I should have been more careful forever all time. Yeah. All time. Didn't we just do this? I don't know. Do we? Maybe uh, try to think. Well, you always say us. I think we did it on someone else's show. Oh, Oh yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. Well, I always say us deal because that was the first one I ever bought, but, how about this? What was your most horribly wrong thesis? Uh, probably IntelliCheck. So I thought that good promise there, and that small cap went down quite a bit. So, <laughs> yeah. What was the other one that was like the the Botox replacer? Evelis, yeah, a lot of people still pitching that. I think it's done decently well. It hasn't. Let's see where that's trading. Yeah, Bread Run, where we bought it still. So I guess, you know, not good, not bad. Still about nine bucks a share. Yeah, that one's honestly just growing well, but we had more concerns with the management team. What about you? What was your wrong thesis? I might say Wix just because I remember because you just brought that up so that's top of mind yeah the thesis well my assumption for growth was a fair a fair bit off yeah a good ways Um, that's the dangerous part about buying up or paying up yeah for sure yeah the i don't know that that one's probably up there there was a lot of companies I used to own that I would just like hear a pitch when I was like a lot younger. I'd just hear a pitch and I'd buy it. And I just really had no sense of what I owned. 
I did that with what was that company that Teladoc bought? Lavongo. Yeah. And my thesis was I wasn't even wrong. It was just non-existent. I was, was a like, tele, I was a Teladoc guy, made money on it just because of the pandemic. Digital health, baby. Revolution. Oh, yext. Oh, yes. That was yeah. off. Oh, was fine. that you or is that me? That I think it was like one. a combination. We both looked at it and we're like, well, this is cool. And then it's just been. Yeah, I think I saw a tweet that sums Marvel. up the the Yex story is they got a, it was like Yex perpetually has a revolutionary new product coming next year. Which sums up that story pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, I never really understood what they did that well because they were always trying to change what they did. And I remember we talked about it and then someone like at the company was, or I said, I tweeted something bad about it. I was like, yeah, I sold it. You know, I had these concerns and someone at the company was like chewing me out on Twitter. I'm like, okay, dude, I'm like that's 20 a red, years old, man. Just leave it. That's a red flag. Uh, not that they would do that. Okay. Mount yeah. Rushmore of red flags. Have red flags All like right. during your, during on your checklist. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Well, I do the read the proxy each week for us. That's kind of my purview as we separate the research out. So I think on the proxy statement, it would be the biggest red flag for a management team. I, I can come up with a few. I mean, if you listen to our not so deep dives, I'd probably find one or two at least in all of these, just because it's gotten so egregious in recent years. First one though. Executive compensation, but it's the perks that the companies get. Now, if it's like healthcare or 401k plans, that's fine. That's usually what every executive gets, right? But if it's paid for by the company and it is something like gym membership, social clubs, a bunch of travel expenses, blah, 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 that they're getting reimbursed for, and it's a huge amount of money, that's a red flag for me. Other red flag, this is the obvious one. It's the classic getting paid on adjusted EBITDA when you're a capital intensive business that uses lots of stock-based compensation. It's a self-fulfilling cycle. It really irks me. It's just not aligning your uh, goals with the goals of the, your outside shareholders. I'll try to think of others, but what do you have for red flags on a company? A lot of them are like the way management communicates with shareholders. One big red flag for me is during conference calls, talking about profitability on an adjusted basis. Like, yeah, that's all they focus on, or never saying anything about per share. Yeah. So just talking about like nominal profitability. I've also got this kind of talks about what we were discussing earlier. Talking about the growth in workforce as a positive. Sure. I've seen a lot of executives where they're like, we're we grew our workforce by 10% year over year. What why are you why are you bragging about that? Yeah. I'll have another easy red flag off balance sheet stuff. See that in the proxy statement. Pretty easy to find. They have to record it. Yeah. I and mean, that's self-explanatory, I would say. Another one, if it's a small company and they have 
for example, 13 board members and they're all getting paid $200,000 a year. You know, it yeah. might not be the game changer there, but I think it shows where your priorities lie, which is paying your buddies and not focusing on the best way to generate ca- uh, cash for, for shareholders. Yeah. The other one, and this is kind of vague, but I would say being a promoter, not of the business, but of the stock, trying to convince people to buy. Like if I'm an executive or if, if I'm a major owner of the business, I don't see the incentive to convince people to buy because the only reason I would be doing that is if I want people to buy the stock, I want the stock to go up in price, right? That's that's kind of obvious. The only reason I'd be doing that is to use it to finance costs, whether that's through stock-based compensation or raising money with equity offerings. If I own a whole bunch of the business, I would rather have it reasonably priced or even maybe undervalued so that I can return cash at reasonable levels, right? Yeah, yeah. Or red flag, uh, this is a clear one. It's even more of a joke, but it's only a select few companies that have j- jumped onto this narrative is talking about the Vanguard BlackRock State Street conspiracy that they own every company in the world. I think that's a clear one, but that's obviously rare. I think another one that's more prevalent is combating short sellers, talking about short sellers, saying they're evil. I mean, that's going to keep me out of Shopify forever, I think. I agree. Yeah. Tyler Ferris here says related party transactions are a big micro cap red flag. I would agree because some of these companies seems to, and from maybe the more the experts in the industry that I try to follow and learn from have said that some of these executives use the micro cap company as their piggy bank. I believe it. I mean, okay. Or you have any more? I think a lot of people. I don't know if this is how it used to be, but I think a lot of executives today of public companies really, whether they do it intentionally or kind of just as a default treat, like treat the public markets as a way to finance their own personal lives. The McKinseyification of America, Ryan, I'm on this train. Okay. We've got some... Yeah, you, you want to look at that ally one? You have that ally one, or do you want to hit something else? Yeah, there's some other ones too. Fuhat says, y'all sleep on weed maps. Hey, we interviewed yeah. the CFO uh, a little while ago. Hopefully, the audio quality of that is good, but because we did that was before we upgraded our mics. But we, uh, we actually interviewed the CEO, CFO. Very interesting, but I don't really have much thoughts on the cannabis space. I have, I declared it uninvestable. I'm waiting for the brands to emerge. That's, I'm waiting for the Coca-Cola to emerge. I'm waiting for the Marlboro to emerge. So that doesn't, you know, it's going to be a while, but hey, if you're early, it could be big returns. Yeah. It just feels like anything cannabis related is just constantly running into a regulatory headwind. Yeah. And I think for the time being, I just don't want to be, I don't want to have that overhang. There's also someone asked, I don't see it now, but. Someone asked about Fabio and uh, Fabio. Oh, 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 the capital mindset guys. And Andrew. Yeah. What'd they say? I think they they said who had the better pitch. Both were good. 
Yeah. <laughs> I want to be a politician. Here. There are different types of companies too. So there's a good mix of both. One was growthier. One was, you know, very, very durable growth. One was a capital return story. So yeah, yeah I would listen. To I'm both. glad we like, how do we, how do we get in touch with them? They got in touch with us. Uh, I think on one of these chats here, Andrew said, get in touch with me. And uh, we did. And yeah, they're great. Seem to have really, really overlapping on any listeners to our show should go check them out. It's great. They have a YouTube channel plus some other stuff. Go contact them, listen to our interview, email them, whatever you want to do. Here's another question from Tyler. This is a great one. I would say, what do you guys think about allies net interest margins in a quote, higher for longer environment? Do you think net interest margins will compress back to pre-COVID levels? Higher. I think they believe it'll be higher. Now, the big question is the auto market, used car prices, stuff like that. But I think it can be higher or at least the same because if you look at how their loan book is pricing the new loans on their automotive stuff, which makes up the majority, is much, much higher. So if you, okay, they're, they're lending out like, I think 10%, let's just use 10% as an example. And they're paying their interest at about 5% on their deposits. And yeah, there's some other variables in play as we get to kind of the true, what their earnings are going to be. But I still think there's plenty of room for them to earn a solid 4% net interest margin once uh basically if, if we stick at five percent interest rates from the fed for two years and their loan book reprices right I, I i think they can get their net interest margin higher from here yeah so here's the way we look at it. i'm sharing the screen and we've got kind of the yield that they're generating on the earning assets versus the cost of funds so as a percentage of their overall lendable funds that they have, Depo- consumer deposits is the lowest cost, and it's gone up from I want to say like fifty to fifty percent to almost ninety percent of their total funds over the last decade. Good point. Yep. That because the cost of those deposits has gone up lately with the rise of interest rates you're seeing a quicker rise in the cost of in the cost of deposits while earning assets it takes a little longer for the yield to rise because you've got these old loans that are at lower yields and so it's going to just take a little longer for for those to rise and so you get that compression of the net interest margin which you can see on this chart it's kind of come down a bit but over time if you assume that their yield is going to grow kind of in sync with how cost of funds have grown because the lower cost deposits are beginning to make up more and more of their funds. I think you're going to see a wider net interest margin than what they had pre-COVID, which doesn't. it feels like either maybe that isn't getting accounted for or people just aren't really willing to wait because the risk associated with used cars right now, just car prices in general, people are concerned. And so for us, like we think, yes, they can return to higher net interest margins than they had pre-COVID. And if that's the case, they're going to be earning a huge chunk of their of the equity value every year um, from their loan book. Yeah, here's here's the, here's really the here is why they're facing compression and why we think it's short term. 
if you look at the cost of funds deposits that when they change that from a 2% interest rate to a 5% interest rate today that reprices overnight then they have to pay 5% on all of their deposits but their loan book takes about given about auto loans gives about it takes about 2 years to reprice so you're going to have if say if interest rates from the fed go up by 2 3% over a one year period as they have over the last say 9 months or I guess maybe that's even, yeah, whatever it's been. You're going to have a bit of a headwind for two years, but once you get to a period where it's been a year or two, when interest rates from the Fed aren't rising at an aggressive rate, then everything will reprice. And we think that as long as the rest of the business is doing fine, uh, net interest margins will not be a concern. All yeah, right. they just really just need to basically bridge that gap. And I think a lot of it is going to, I think maybe even the United Auto Workers Union strike lately might honestly help bridge that gap where as long as used car prices can remain relatively high, it could even come down a little bit and they'd be all right. As long as they don't absolutely plummet to the floor, Ally's going to do okay on the loans they or on everything they lent out. So I, I think they're in a pretty good position, but people seem to be very pessimistic about the auto market. Yeah. Don't take all your information from YouTube videos. I would say that, which again, that's a joke about us, but Car- also Carmageddon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It can be good information, but I say don't base a thesis off of that. There could be different information that isn't purely anecdotes. I have another question from Lakers and four thoughts on the universe. Unity controversy. I would say that, not surprising with that management team. Yeah. yeah. That's the old, that's Riccatello, isn't it? Yeah. The old, it took the easiest business to run in the world, EA Sports, and somehow botched it. So, yeah. And he can wipe his tears from us not liking his strategy with all the millions that he is paid. So, I think he'll be okay. Other question here from John. Millions. Yeah. Millions, tens of millions, tens of millions for sure. Here's a quick question from John. Thoughts on the capital allocator basket? Boston Omaha, Berkshire, Nelnet, Markel. Uh, I believe that's Blackstone. I know you guys are long Nelnet. Yes, we are. I would watch the episode on that. That is our largest holding. So we are going to be biased there. I think my philosophy on... It's Brookfield. Or is BN Brookfield? Not Blackstone? I, I get confused. I get, I get confused. To That should show that I don't know much about those businesses. Yeah, Brookfield. But... My philosophy on the conglomerates, the capital allocators is one, I want a track record of a decent amount of time. That's what attracted us in Nelnet. Obviously, that should attract you to Markel and Berkshire Hathaway as well. But two, I want to look at something that is as small as reasonably possible within that basket because... Berkshire, maybe not Markel, but of you know they're closer to that than a Nelnet. Berkshire hits the law of large numbers. Nelnet's going to be much much farther away from that. That's why I think the sweet spot for us, and this is why we're attracted to these two companies, IAC and Nelnet. Nelnet's a little bit better track record. IAC has a decent track record, but it's been bogged down a bit lately. That's why I like both of those. Not too not too big, and great long term track records of creating value for shareholders. Yeah. I mean, you can't have like a $10 million financial conglomerate because, well, for once. Well, we looked, we looked at one of those and that was uh, very risky, but it had, 
part of the problem, and I didn't really appreciate this until we went to the Boston Omaha shareholder meeting a couple of years back, but with the smaller guys, it's hard to get access to good deals sometimes. Like you just don't have volume of what are they what they call deal flow because people, whoever's on top of certain deals, they're like, you know, what do you, pref- what, what can you bring to the table? It's like, well, I've got like $5 million that, and that might not be, might not be enough to kind of get access to some of the really valuable um, transactions. But I think in general, I would say that basket's going to do pretty well would be yeah. my overall guess. You're going to get probably solid performance out of that five. Everyone, I think. I would just I have, do. Tw- I have some concerns about right. Boston Omaha, but I don't know. What if you just do twenty percent each, and then every year you rebalance to twenty percent? Not the worst strategy in the world. There, not the worst strategy. Here's what I have as a crazy strategy that I've been thinking of. I don't know if I'd ever implement this. It's purely hypothetical. This is not what I'm doing. But let's say you have a tax-free account. What do you think of this idea? You put all your money in Altria, living yielding nine percent. Right, that's obviously crazy at the start, right? Bad start. <laughs> no, hey, pass done. <laughs> it's yielding nine percent. You don't reinvest. You take the nine percent yield, tax free, and each quarter, right? And you buy what you think is the best opportunity uh, in the market. I think that. I think, take, well. I think Altria's dividend is going to see some pressure. Oh, let's bet. Let's make a bet because I disagree. The math just doesn't, it's, it's too easy for them. I just ran the math on this. At 10% model. volume declines? Let's, <laughs> let's say, let's say volume, cigarette volumes decline by, let's call it 8% a year for the next 10 years. You don't well, think that would be a gonna see quadru- pressure? That would. Yeah, but that would be a quadruple of the long term, the the yeah, rate of the last decade. It also has accelerated in the last. Yeah, two I'll, years. Uh, yeah, I think. Let me show you a chart. Let me show you a chart. Okay. I would make a. I would make a bet that that's not going to happen. The math. I. I just. Uh, the. Uh, the per the the articles do super well for <laughs> when you write Motley Fool dividend yield nine percent. So I like writing those, and plus they're very fun to do. Let me share you a chart here from the Investor Day, which fairly recent, you know, about a year old. But you could say there's that acceleration, right? I think we're not. And again, things can totally change. You could have a thesis for things changing, and that would work. It the number of adult smokers in the United States is not too far off from its long-term linear decline here, which has been about 2.5% a year. I don't think there's too much to worry about. I don't know. Altria doesn't feel like a place I want to park my cash. I kind of think, I kind of think it's goodbye here, but Obviously, we're not going to buy it in the fund because you seem to disagree. But I think it's I think it's goodbye. Which is Philip Morris at this point. You have a business that's actually growing volumes again in the tobacco business. I don't know. I mean, obviously, Ultra is nowhere near that. And, yeah, and you also like 
it's not like they don't have price and power. They've got the price and power and volumes are growing again. I think they're in a position to start growing 10% earnings per share. And yeah, it trades at a bit of a premium, but you're still getting a 5% dividend yield there too. Okay. Let's look at 10-year earnings per share. Who do you think over the last 10 years? And yes, Philip Morris is invested in other stuff. So it might not be the perfect, say since 2014, who do you think's earnings per share is grown the quickest, grown the most? Altrius. Altrius. I'm telling you, I think the next 10 years, a lot the next 10 years, the Yeah, time. I know. That doesn't mean. Past results do not guarantee future returns. Uh, I know, I know. As everyone has to say. All right, we've been going for 62 minutes, so. Oh, all right. Well, that's a good one then because we didn't even realize it. So that's a good way to end it. Maybe we'll keep going on the Altria one. Maybe Ryan has to buy me a share if if they grow their div- if their dividends higher five years from now or something. We can come up with a bet, but we can find, find share. something fun. At, share, uh, share will be a lot cheaper. So, <laughs> hey, yeah, that could be a fun, that could be a, a self fulfilling bet. But yeah, that's going to do it for this episode. This was a fun one. Thank you for everyone for joining. Those are some fantastic questions. Come back next week on Thursday, do a live show. Thank you to our sponsor, Manscaped, that Ryan is showing off there. Full disclosure, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. You can catch these episodes live Thursdays or catch the replays on your favorite podcast player Sunday morning. Listen wherever you want. We are at General Partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Uh, I think that's going to close things out. Thank you, everyone, again, and we'll see you next time.